0: Welcome to the brownstein hyatt farber Shrek podcast series. Brownstein senior policy advisor Mike Stratton joined shareholder Melissa Kuypers-Blake to discuss Mike's role in Gary Hart's campaign for the 1988 Democratic presidential nomination that is depicted in the movie The Front Runner. They discuss Mike's experience as Hart's lead advance man, how the events of 1988 fundamentally changed political reporting, and their thoughts on the correlations between Hart's story and the current political environment.
1: The Front Runner is the film coming out this fall based on the 2014 book, All the Truth is Out, The Week Politics Went Tabloid, written by Matt Bai. Producer Jason Reitman co-wrote the screenplay with Matt Bai and Jay Carson. The film chronicles the rise of Colorado Senator Gary Hart, a Democratic candidate for the 1988 Democratic presidential nomination, and his subsequent fall from grace when media reports surfaced of his alleged extramarital affair. It stars an ensemble cast featuring Hugh Jackman as Hart and Alex Karpovsky, best known for his role on HBO's Girls as the one and only Mike Stratton, who in 1988 was Hart's lead advance man on his presidential campaign and is now a senior policy director here at at Brownstein-Hyatt-Farber-Schreck. The film premiered at the Telluride Film Festival back in August and is scheduled to be released in the United States by Columbia Pictures on November 6, 2018, also known in our circles as Election Day. Mike, why don't you tell us how you met Senator Gary Hart?
0: Well, it was an awfully long time ago. I was a uh, student up at Colorado State University. He was running for the U.S. Senate in uh, 1974. I was a uh, sophomore at CSU and was working at the uh, school newspaper, The Collegian, and uh, was a young Democrat and uh, worked on his uh, 74 Senate campaign as a volunteer. And then uh, stuck with him through uh, very many years and did uh, his Senate reelection in 1980. And then when he first ran for president, starting in uh, 82, 83, for the 84 nomination, which he lost narrowly to uh, then-Vice President Mondale. And then uh, lived The Truth Is Out uh, and that story in uh, 1987 with Senator Hart and others that are in this story.
1: So what do you remember most about him? Like when you sit here now, what is it the thing that comes back most in your mind?
0: Well, I guess the thing that uh, after a while, you know, the personalities or the fun thing or, you know, the funny ride, et cetera, et cetera, some of that fades a little bit and you're left with what are the real things or the deeper things. And I guess what, uh, having been in politics for nearly 40 years now, and having worked for presidents and congressmen and senators and secretaries and whatnot, what I'm left with about Hart was his really unbelievably deep knowledge of the world, of history, and his ability to use history to foretell what's going to go on in the future. And uh, a number of his policies that he was studious about had written about reform of the military uh, what was what's now going on in the middle east globalization uh we could be here for quite a while but there were in any number of issues and areas that he foretold what he believed was going to happen to the US and the world in those regards and uh amazingly many or most of them have come to be. And so like others, I'm left with, wow, what would it, could it have been had he been president?
1: So you talk about this incident, the incident that most folks remember him by, notwithstanding all the benefits and qualities that you just discussed about your time with him, that this changed political reporting as we know it, right? This was the turning point. So talk to us a little bit more about what you mean by that and and how the shift really has happened from that time present day?
0: Well, I think at that time, the the Hart time and the Hart presidential campaigns, there were a lot of things going on in the country and within the Democratic Party. Uh, There was a generational turn in the party from the old guard of Humphrey, McGovern, uh, Mondale, to Gary Hart, and then those who have have followed since. And uh, that was going on in the party. There was also an increasing equalization of what women were doing in politics and media, etc., And so that element, which was a very good element, helped foster a change in the rules in terms of how politicians were looked at relative to their private lives. And prior to, say, the 88th campaign, a lot of the shortcomings people had in their personal lives was unknown, unheralded, uh, and known often by the press or by supporters or followers or peer leaders, and it was an unsaid thing. Your personal life is your personal life. I think the first time the rules were changed— in the presidential venue, which is obviously the highest level of news activity, political activity, et cetera, et cetera. When those rules changed with the uh, Gary Hart, Donna Rice situation, uh, it was the first time the press had moved from being reporting news to reporting sensation, personality, scandal. Scandal.
1: So, for those who don't remember, you know, let's go through a little bit of that sensational component of of Hart's campaign and and what really happened. You know, I think everyone remembers monkey business. They re- they remember Donna Rice, but what else is there? You know, let's let's walk through kind of what happened.
0: Well, what happened was uh, after the midterm elections in 1986. People started looking at 1988 for the presidency, and by far and a wide, Hart was perceived having been so close to beating Mondale in the previous cycle as the front runner. And there were others in the race who were serious people, uh, Governor Dukakis, who became the nominee. Uh, Speaker Gebhardt, uh, who ran, uh, Senator Simon from Illinois, there were a number of serious candidates, but at that time they called them Gary Hart and the Seven Dwarfs, meaning that he was so much bigger, stronger, popular than the rest of the field. In fact, he had an almost 20-point lead over Vice President Bush at the time, who became the eventual Republican nominee and then beat Governor Dukakis in the fall of 88. So Hart announces in uh, April of 1987 that he's officially going to run, embarks on campaigning around the country. It's rolling out like magic. Headlines, crowds, people are comparing him to the next, you know, the next version of JFK. It is uh, going unbelievably well in terms of the rollout of a campaign and what people are saying about him uh, as a candidate. Policy-wise, he's being heralded in in editorials as the, you know, the next generation thinker, leader, etc. During that late period of April, he ended up going on a weekend sort of uh, getaway with an a, a, uh, advisor of his who would uh, took him on a boat, a fishing type boat, to Bimini, which is an island right off of uh, Florida coast and uh, During that trip, they encountered uh, some young women, including a young woman by the name of Donna Rice who was pictured sometime later on the National Enquirer as uh, sitting on Senator Hart's lap. And it looks like it's a very private kind of shot, but it was actually taken on a big pier where there were hundreds of people, but it was portrayed to be some insidious and, and sort of hideaway kind of situation. In any case, some weeks later, she comes up to uh, see Senator Hart, uh, with a friend of hers, and she goes to his place, and then it's n- there's no real answer to how long she was there or what transpired when she was there or not, but she was staked out by the Miami Herald who'd gotten a tip from her friend who was traveling with her, a woman by the name of Lynn Armant. Uh, in recent days, it's been played out that the famous Republican uh, operative and and Vice President Bush's campaign manager Lee Atwater actually paid for Lynn Armont to put the whole thing together to be a setup for Hart. Nevertheless, at best for Hart, it was a bad judgment kind of situation to be caught in that situation. And so the the story then broke that he uh, had this woman up from Florida. She spent apparently spent the night in his condo and what was up with Gary Hart in his personal life when he'd been married for many, many years and still married now over 50 or maybe even 60 years. And it became a story unlike any similar incident that had ever occurred. And then that played out in the campaign as we tried to move forward in New York and New Jersey and New Hampshire. We were inundated with the paparazzi effect of press. People wanted to talk about Donna Rice and, you know, uh, adultery and his personal sex life and being, you know, in Bimini. And there was no room to talk about foreign policy, to talk about domestic policy, you know, economic security, issues that were Hart's uh, wheelhouse, if you will. And so after several days of being inundated and uh, stalked by the press and having them throw themselves on our cars as we tried to move in motorcades or blocking the streets to, you know, uh, put cameras in the windows, and then an incident in New Hampshire where a TV camera almost knocked Mrs. Hart out, he said, this is enough. I can't get my message out. This is a circus. It's not going to serve the process uh, or certainly my family well and so i'm i'm out and so in the spring of 87 he dropped out of the campaign and uh later got back in uh, that fall but by that time most people in the early you know primary states had sort of picked and chosen who they're going to be with and uh hart wasn't any longer their person so he uh he got out again after Super Tuesday in 1988 and uh, it was the the great story of politics of what could have would have should have been
1: so earlier you talked about how you know there was a level of discretion if you will in a political candidate's personal life and the decisions they made in a personal situation you know in their in their married life may or may not really impact what they did as a professional. And this was the turning point for that. Why do you think suddenly this is something that voters needed to know? Why did the press need to know? Why was it this time, this person, you know, why did Hart essentially open up the floodgates for what we deal with now in politics, which is every move you make, everything you do is either on video, should be available to the public, and nothing is sacred anymore?
0: Well, I think that uh, uh, one of the things that played out behind the scenes I spoke to a little bit earlier, and that is the evolution of the evening of the playing field between men and women in politics, in business, and particularly in the press. And I think in the press in particular, women were starting to break the glass ceilings of newsrooms. They were being the camera people, they were being the reporters, and they were being the editors who were calling for stories, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, with that good evolution, I think that they're brought some sort of, you know, what's the equity of this kind of thing? I mean, women always get sort of passed off, are the sort of victims of indiscretions uh, with men politicians in particular. And, you know, that is not a fair or equitable sort of life. And today we look at those situations in business and politics and law firms and media very differently differently. Uh, And one of the reasons that has changed is because of situations like this and those that have come later. What's interesting about the what's come later is that Hart's situation, although clearly a bad judgment on his part at the time, the scale of Hart and, say, his indiscretions versus some others that have come and others who've been elected president since, pale. And so to some extent, there's a lot of people out there that call Hart the John the Baptist of politics in that the press delivered up the head of Gary Hart and Bill Clinton and Donald Trump are the beneficiaries of someone earlier on uh, being punished for what now is more commonplace.
1: Well, and, you know, the the book and certainly the movie talk about arguably all of these indiscretions, if you will, were consensual, you know, and then we lead into a very different dialogue in politics today with the Me Too movement about, you know, okay, maybe consensual relationships are okay, maybe they're not, but certainly non-consensual relationships are not okay. And using power to create those relationships is not something that us as a country and our democracy will stand for. I guess the real question is, you know, this movie is coming out on election day of this year. We're dealing with a very aggressive and partisan midterm. What does this mean for the current political dynamic? You know, is the heart story in line with really just the beginning of what was going to happen now? Does it get worse? Does it get better? You know, do politicians have any expectation of privacy on these things? I think it's really kind of a where are we now as a country, and how do we feel about these things? And I'll add, you know, you look at the evangelical support for President Trump, even in light of some of these allegations about affairs, they're still with him, and they're with him because he's good on abortion, and he's good on foreign policy, and he's good on domestic policy for them. So I guess the big question is, does it matter anymore? You know, we talk about it, but does it change anyone's vote?
0: Well, that's interesting. Uh, Does it change anyone's vote? I think one of the things that we know or are seeing in politics today is this notion of tribalism and that we are uh, have slipped back to maybe old, smaller, homogenous groups that we come from family-wise, racial-wise, geography-wise, job-wise, etc. And I think that, to some extent, the country is more bifurcated and divided up than it has been in a long time and one of the things that fosters that is modern media with social media in particular and therefore that situation i think has fostered uh, a situation where there are one fewer good people getting into politics because they don't want to go through this level of scrutiny. So I think the net effect of this, to answer your question, Melissa, is that probably the biggest impact that the heart situation has had negatively on politics is that it's made a lot of people on both sides of the aisle think twice or a third time about, why do I want to go through that, or why would I put my family through that, and therefore we get more contrived candidates who have sort of built themselves in a bubble for their entire lives and aren't ideologically diverse or much done experientially, uh, some of which comes from screwing up or making mistakes in life, which uh, we all need to grow and be better. And now people are in a sterile, bubble-like environment who move forward in politics uh, because they're concerned that any faux pas that in life will derail them. Therefore, you get these contrived candidates instead of real people with real experience.
1: Which leads me to my next point, which is we now live in this instant gratification society where news channels are on twenty four seven. They have to create news, quite frankly, if it doesn't exist for what's breaking or what needs to be done for the nine o'clock hour. And perception has really become reality in politics, where if you're sitting on a boat with a woman, it doesn't matter that there might be a pier full of people around you, but that photo makes it look like it's a secret rendezvous. And How how do we deal with that as a society? How do we get into really the truth of who candidates are when, in fact, between social media, 24-hour news, and this kind of gotcha mentality where candidates are tracked with video cameras all the time and they are sometimes taken out of context, oftentimes taken out of context? How do we get to the truth of who someone is when they're running for office and what we think they might do as an elected official?
0: Well, um, I would say that... Particularly, my generation of people in politics have left for people in your generation of politics a bad model. You and yours have been taught you got to hire a private investigator to investigate yourself and investigate your opponent and try and find things that can be exploited to really destroy the person, which is often more easy to out-debate or out-policy the person. And because people who are making a decision very late in the process, most people are locked in now like 45-45 in the national presidential feeling of things. So then you've got 90% of the people have made up their mind, they're locked in, they might sway a little bit, some big, big thing might move them, but probably not. And so now at the end, you have 10% of the people that all of the information is being thrown at because they're late deciders, they haven't had time, they're not partisan, and so they make their opinion off of the good things that someone projects about themselves or the bad things that their opponents often say about them, and it really is absolutely true. We all say, oh, we hate negative campaigning. We, It's so awful. Don't do it. Uh, please don't do it. But it is extraordinarily effective. And every time that there is a candidate who says, I'm not going to go negative, and their opponent goes negative, the person who went negative with a reasonable negative argument, sometimes, you know, you can go too crazy, but you take a little bit of fact like the famous Willie Horton in 1980, African-American guy who got was part of a statewide early parole program that the state of Massachusetts had put through the legislature to get people out of prison earlier because they didn't have enough prisons, so they were trying to get people who they thought were going to be okay or not Criminals again out early because they had other people to house. So, this statewide program, not Michael Dukakis, lets uh, Governor Willie Horton out. He, in turn, goes and does some horrendous crimes when he should still be in prison under the terms of his original penalty. He was properly paroled. And then that makes the whole program look bad and it gets thrown back, was thrown back on Dukakis. And so Dukakis is the guy who literally went down, you know, the perception is Dukakis went down, unlocked the jail, let the guy out, gave him a gun, gave him some money and said, go rape and pillage. That's the impression that the ads that uh, were done by a guy by name of Lee Atwater, who I spoke of earlier on his deathbed, claimed to have you know, recanted that he set up Gary Hart in, in 1987. So... That is how we exist today. And there is an entire industry of lawyers, lobbyists, consultants, media firms, research firms that are now part of this system that has inertia. And that inertia is not going to die down because of the dollars involved and how much money there is in politics. So it all comes back to uh, we are in a Sort of mousetrap of the process that because of social media, because of three or four hundred, or depending on if you're on satellite, 900 stations that you could watch, that we're going to be in this situation for a while. So it takes us further and further away from the citizen politician, and I don't see a near term way of it. Coming back uh, to the old ways. Now, someone would say, oh, well, everybody says about the old ways. Well, you know, Adams and Jefferson hated each other to, uh, to a larger extent than Hillary and Trump, literally. Um, and they wrote the worst and almost awful things about each other. Um, the stories about you know Jefferson and the slaves were first propagated by John Adams, who tried to slur Jefferson early on in the process of you know building the country So Politics has always been nasty and, and it is nasty as bad as it sounds here, as bad as it is it 's a lot worse other places and if you have a little historical thinking about it. It's been bad in the past, but we didn't know about it as much because there weren't as many ways to communicate broadly to people in general.
1: So I think we're probably getting toward the end, but let me ask one more question that I think might round it all out. So we've talked about Senator Hart's situation and the perception of what he was or was not doing on that day uh, on monkey business. You've got the Donald Trump situation, um, allegations by a variety of individuals about whether or not he engaged in extramarital affairs, and there's proof to suggest that he had. You know, and then you've got a guy like Vice President Mike Pence, who has a policy of not meeting with women alone. Right. And he gets made fun of for that, too. Right. right? So it's almost like politicians can't win. Either you're having multiple affairs and we're going to throw you out or not. Or you're doing things to guard yourself and your family based on religious beliefs, character, whatever the mechanism is. And that's unacceptable, too, because, gosh, you know, what stone age is he living in? But how do politicians live in this environment? I mean, you and I have both worked with exceptional individuals in this business. And unfortunately, the entire elected office, you know, all elected office holders kind of get painted with this, ah, they're just a politician brush. I feel differently. I've made some great friends, as have you, in this business. So in this current environment, in the instant gratification of social media, et cetera, and 24-hour news, how do you survive this business? And and to your point earlier, maybe that's the answer. People aren't just doing it anymore. Well, (laughs) How do you exist now?
0: I, I think it's different for you and I to exist. Because to some extent, we can go away for the weekend or we can not return phone calls for 24 hours or we can, you know, go be with our kid in the emergency room. If you're a politician, it is now a 24-hour job at a certain level. You know, let's say, you know, mayor on up. And Congress people, that would be the worst job ever to be in Congress because you have, you can never stop running. So you can never stop running and uh, being from your side of the aisle. And so that becomes your pavlum, your belief, et cetera, et cetera. And there becomes very little opportunity for people to interact. When I first went to Washington in the mid-70s, members of Congress and staffers interacted on a regular social basis like, you know, anybody else, like we do here in the firm, maybe even more so. And that is not the case anymore. It is us against them more times than not. And people have reveled in the passing of Senator McCain, which I think is is good that we have, and acknowledged him as being a maverick, a guy who crossed the aisles, you know, a man of integrity, war hero. He deserved everything he got. 30 years ago, 40 years ago, there were far more people like John McCain in the Congress and in the Senate who got things done together through collaboration. And one of the reasons that I would say that this has transpired is some of what has come out of this whole, you know, all the truth is out, the change of the press and what they're going to report versus not report. And then the full-time campaign that I've spoken about, which is this inertia of the campaign political industry that's the news media, it's the fundraising world, it's the political world, it's the, the issues and uh, think tank people pushing their agendas. Uh, you have a multi-hydra of vested interests in politics that are not easily going to go away. And in the aggregate, from time to time, they do not work for the best interests of the public. And they chase a lot of good people out of politics. And that's probably the saddest thing, is that oftentimes now those who are running for office on either side are the least common denominator of the people we would like to see or the quality of people experientially that we'd like to see and really need to have.
1: Well, thanks, Mike. Um, This has been an amazing time, and and I certainly learned a lot, and it's my true pleasure to call you a colleague. So thanks for your time today.
0: Well, Melissa, thanks for doing this. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein High at Farber Shrek podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.